You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. The only thing I've ever wanted to do in my life uh, was to be a soldier. Nothing ever came along that really excited me or uh, pulled me away from my uh, devotion to soldiering. General Colin Powell. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. The United States marks Veterans Day tomorrow, and very recently we lost one of the most revered veterans of modern times. The son of Jamaican immigrants, Colin Powell, was a lifelong soldier. He joined the ROTC when he was in college in the 1950s. He served two tours of duty in Vietnam, being wounded in one of those. When he came back to the U.S., he joined the Nixon administration. In 1979, he was elevated to Brigadier General, and by 1989, Colin Powell was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. As chairman, he played a critical role in the operations of the Persian Gulf War. Later, when George W. Bush was elected president in 2000, he named Colin Powell his Secretary of State, a post that Powell held for Mr. Bush's entire first term. Now, I met Colin Powell in the summer of 1996. As you're about to hear, just as the campaigns between Bill Clinton, who was running for re-election, and Republican Bob Dole were really beginning to heat up. It was just before the Republican convention that year. Now, you might hear some cameras clicking in the background of this interview, if you listen closely. That's because the Associated Press sent photographers over, because this was General Powell's first interview of 1996, at least the first major interview from 1996. And he actually made national headlines with something he said later during this interview about the 1996 campaign. So, here now. From 1996, General Colin Powell. It did occur to me as I was reading this and, and looking at the events of the past year that uh, Colin Powell's rule number five came to mind. Be careful what you choose because you may get it. You, No one chooses to write a book that's not going to be successful. You wrote a book and it was very successful. Yeah, I'm very, very pleased uh, with the success of the book. Uh, one never knows, though. You uh, you know, I mean, it, it was uh, pins and needles for me. I've never done anything like this before. And it was a new experience, uh, and I'm very, very pleased with the success of the book. Are you surprised, genuinely, sur- are you surprised by the success of the book? I am perhaps more surprised than uh, my publisher and, uh, and, and editor and uh, agent and collaborator were. They, they thought we had a pretty good product all the while, but I, I wasn't sure in my own heart. And it was only when the book went out and it got uh, good reviews and then an exceptionally uh, good reaction, not only from here and my fellow citizens in the United States, but, but uh, from foreign audiences as well. I take it that what has has warmed you so is that the fact that many readers seem to prefer the first half of the book to the second. Yeah, this this was uh, this was very uh, remarkable and very very satisfying. You know, when you write what is characterized as a political memoir, you sort of salt it with these little bits about well, I worked for three presidents and I did this, and somebody once offered me the job of Secretary of State and I wasn't able to take it. And you think that will launch the book, and it did sort of launch it for just a day or two. But what really has made the book successful and what is and so satisfying to me is the first part of the book, the, the early years, this American story of an ordinary kid born to extraordinary parents and living in an extraordinary society. That's what really has caused the book to take off. And I've even gone so far to t- as to tell audiences, hey, just read the first half and forget the political memoir stuff in the back. 
unless you're a Washington junkie. It's the first half, this wonderful American story. And to my great delight, that's also been the case with foreign audiences, to the extent that in France, when we sent the book to a French publisher, uh, they came back and said, we want the book, but we can't call it My American Journey. That won't work for a French audience. Well, what do you want to call it? And they came back and said that we wished to title it Un enfant, Un enfant du Bronx, A Kid from the Bronx, A Boy from the Bronx. It's a wonderful inner-city minority kid story, living the American dream, following an American journey. Well, there's a little something in here for everyone. There's the military side, for those who are interested in that. There's the political intrigue and the infighting and the backbiting and the Washington, the, the inside-the-beltway stuff. There's a love story in here that, 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 will, that will satisfy any romance reader. Uh, yeah, chapter three is, is simply titled uh, Courting Alma. And uh, when, I, when I first wrote that chapter and uh, we had it in a form that we could show it to Alma, uh, she read it late one night and uh, she, was, she was very, very moved and she, she told one of her close friends the next day, now I remember why I fell in love. And so it is a wonderful, uh, I think, a wonderful love story. I think it speaks volumes that in the, in the photo section, the caption or, the, or the, 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 the words over the page in which you show us Alma's picture, my luckiest day. Yes. That's, yeah. That says volumes. I was very, very lucky because I almost blew it. I mean, I almost uh, went off to Vietnam without asking her to marry me. Well, if the Army had wanted you to have a wife, they would have issued you That's one. the way I was raised. If uh, In the old days, in the, in the very masculine, macho army that I entered in the late 50s, uh, that was one of the things we talked about. We didn't care that much about families and, and what our wives did. Wasn't, they weren't spouses in those days. They were wives. It's a quite a different army today, but in those days, if the, if the army wanted you to have a wife, they'd have issued you one, son. Um, thank heavens those days were gone. I, I'm curious, is it rules like that that wanted you when, you when you became the Joint Chiefs Chairman? You said in the book that you wanted to take the military in different directions than it had been taken before without being chained to the past 40 years. Is that one of the things that you wanted to change? Well, it had already changed in that regard by the time I became Chairman. By the time I became Chairman, I mean, we, we really had turned our attention to taking care of families, and the majority of our soldiers coming into the service now are married as opposed to the way it was when I came in. So you'd better take care of those families. And if you want to have a happy soldier or a sailor or airman or marine, you better make their the spouse happy as well and the children and provide a, a, a family environment for them. So I thought that my job as chairman uh, in working with my colleagues in the Joint Chiefs of Staff who actually run the services was to keep moving in that direction to make uh, the military a happy place for a family so that you will have a happy GI uh, to go off uh, and, and perform missions for the nation. But I think you also meant that to take it in a different direction in the sense that we're no longer in a Cold War. That's the exactly world is right. different. The world is so different. Um, in my term as chairman beginning in uh, late 1989, I saw the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, uh, the enemy we had been prepared to fight for 40 years suddenly just gave up because they failed. They had a failed system. And so what we did was we changed the size of the Army and, and the other services, uh, the shape of our strategy, the shape of our force structure. Uh, we're the one government department that has come down in size uh, by about 30% now. question is that we come down too far, and that's what's being debated in, in our political system today. But we fundamentally changed the, the nature of the armed forces by making them smaller, giving them a different mission, but with the commitment to ourselves and to our troops and to the nation that it would be a better armed forces, even if it was a smaller armed forces. We're going to keep the quality up. We're going to take care of these volunteers uh, in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard who signed up for us. 
We were not going to break the armed forces apart as we had done at the end of World War One, World War Two, Korea and Vietnam, and live to regret it. And we've done that. And they're doing a great job around the world today. Did we see this, the, the fruits of that labor in the Persian Gulf War? We, we saw it in the Persian Gulf War. We saw it in our deployments to Somalia, to Haiti, to Bosnia. What you see is a professional set of young men and women, the best and brightest of uh, American high school youth, who are patriotic, proud, and uh, do a marvelous job uh, uh, for the nation. Do you think the people who are leading the Pentagon now get it? Yeah, they get it. Um, I trained them. They better get it. <laughs> um, I think one, one of the things that, that you do as chairman or as a senior military leader is to make sure that the people who come after you have uh, been trained and inspired and, and can do an even better job than you did. And I'm, I'm persuaded that I was successful in that regard by the performance of the senior leaders of the armed forces today. Now, you said another, another one of the photo captions as your final salute. You said your only regret was that you couldn't do it again. Is that honestly true? Yeah, it's honestly regret? true. The only thing I've ever wanted to do in, in my life was, uh, was to be a soldier. Didn't know that right away, but after I'd been in the Army for a few years, nothing ever came along that really excited me or uh, pulled me away from my, my uh, devotion to soldiering. And so it had to come to an end. You've got to get out of the way and let other people come along. And my, my end came. And, uh, uh, but if I could have been 21 years uh, old again and starting out again, I would not have wanted to do anything else. There are those, I'm not telling you anything new, millions of those all over the country who are more than a bit disappointed that politics hasn't given you the same fire in the belly that being a soldier did. Yes, I know that. And uh, there, there are millions more, I, I think it's uh, balanced to say, who are glad that it, that it, that it hasn't. Um, but it hasn't. And I could not uh, be dishonest to myself or, or to, to my family or to the people who, uh, who uh, are, are warmly inclined toward me in that regard. It did not give me the fire in the belly. It was not something that I felt I could do with my life at this point. And to the extent that I disappointed my fellow Americans, I hope they will understand my reasons and I hope they will, uh, they will know that uh, I'm still going to be playing some role in public life and I'm going to be doing things and am doing things and charitable and educational activities which will make a contribution uh, to this nation. And I, and I haven't passed over yet. You know, I'm, not, uh, I'm not ready to go down to, to Hilton Head and sit in a rocking chair and drink gin fizzes. Um, I'll be active in about... But I couldn't, I, I couldn't even begin to tell you the number of people, not reporters, but ordinary civilians, who, when they found out that I would be talking with you today, the only question they wanted me to ask you, besides how's Alma, is, <laughs> when's he going to run? When is he going to run? When is he going to run? When can I? There are millions of people who want an opportunity to cast a vote for Colin Powell. I'm, I'm enormously uh, touched and flattered by that, that you would have to be brain dead and, and physically dead not to be touched. Um, but at the same time, I have to do what, what I think is right for me and what I think is right for my family. And uh, in, in political life, you really have to have uh, your, your own enthusiasm and not just the enthusiasm of so many others, however well-meaning that enthusiasm is. What it's saying to us, really, though, is that there, there is a, a concern out in, uh, in, in the American public over, over the way in which our political life is unfolding. They are disturbed over the excessive partisanship that they see in each side of our political spectrum and our two parties. They're dis disturbed over the lack of civility that has crept into our public and political discourse. They're disturbed about all the fundraising activities that undergird our political system, and they'd like to see a change. So when a passing general uh, looks like he is untainted by any of this, um, there is an attraction to that. 
similarly uh, a passing Texas billionaire or a passing New York publisher. Um, but uh, political life um, requires a commitment and a passion. It requires you to raise money. It requires you to do things which make you a politician. That's why it's called politics. That's how our system, uh, that's why the system was designed that way by our founding fathers. And it is not a uh, field of endeavor right now that I uh, think I could comfortably go in and do well. After this short break, Colin Powell's remarks about the 96 election that make national headlines. Now back to my 1996 interview with General Colin Powell. Have you closed the door to being on any kind of ballot this year? Yes. Definitively? Uh, yes. <laughs> Shall I expand on that? Yes, or feel? feel? <laughs> no. There's nothing. To, there's nothing to expand on. I. I uh, Deeply flattered and deeply touched, but I, I try to think things out clearly, and, and uh, maybe that's why I might not be a good politician right now, because I tend not to change my mind once I've come to a conclusion of what I think is right, and I came to that conclusion last fall. What role, then, does a, a retired general who has been in demand and has declined the, that mantle for now, what kind of role does he play at a convention that's coming up this summer? Well, I'm, I don't know. I don't know that I will play a role. I'm, I'm in touch with the people who are running the convention, and uh, I am a Republican. I'm uh, pleased to be a Republican, uh, but uh, I'm, I am not anxious to be a major political figure at this time. And so I'm, I'm seeing whether there is a role I can play at the convention, or maybe I won't play a role at the convention. That is, that is up for discussion right now. Uh, would you be campaigning for other Republicans this fall? Um, I don't want to go out, don't plan to go out on the campaign or fundraising trail. I'm a, I'm a Republican. I'm practicing my private my politics uh, privately. I, uh, in my own home state of Virginia, I did uh, attend a fundraiser for Senator Warner, a good friend, a, a great American, and it is my home state now, Virginia, my state of residence. If not my home state, my state of residence. But um, I'm I'm still a retired general, and I don't feel comfortable in, in going around the country doing fundraising or campaign activities. So I will practice my politics privately, and I will continue to seek audiences that are interested in the message I have to give. One that one thing that in, you, in the new afterward to the paperback edition of your book, you mentioned that there were even some Democrats, some disaffected Democrats, who came to you and wanted you to run, run as Republican or an Independent, even or as a Democrat, or as a Democrat, even apparently that they were they were they just wanted you in the race there somewhere. Yeah, who were some of those Democrats who wanted you to? Oh, I, I think I will keep that private. I, I've been flogged uh, uh, in recent days since uh, the afterward became public. Uh, people asking me to identify these folks, but it was, they, those were private conversations, and I think it's best they remain private. How do you keep from getting a swelled head? I married uh, Alma Powell. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I also realized that um, she does keep me down to earth, I can tell you that. And I, I have a pretty good idea of, of, uh, of who I am and, and what I am, and I deeply appreciate the this, this celebrity status that I enjoy, but I'm still pretty much... Uh, Lieutenant Colin Powell, ROTC City College, 1958. And uh, I don't think I have fundamentally changed, and I don't want to fundamentally change from who I was as a lieutenant or who I was as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Well, one of the reviews that, that is quoted inside the jacket of the, 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 the new edition makes reference to the fact that Colin Powell never forgot from whence he came. I, I haven't. I'm in touch with uh, childhood friends, with with friends from college, with uh, commanders of 35 years ago. And uh, that keeps me grounded and, and uh, reminds me that flame and fame and celebrity status can be, uh, can be quite fleeting. 
And at the end of the day, what you really have are your good works, the reputation you enjoy, family and friends. Does it amaze children. Does it amaze you sometimes how far you've come, how far the nation has come in 30, 40 years? Uh, it's all, this nation is a daily source of, amazing, of amazement to me. It's such a wonderful country with such redemptive ability and the ability to correct past problems and to move forward. And to think that a young black kid from the inner city of New York who, uh, when I was a youngster, could not go in the back of a bus down south or who was denied uh, first-class citizenship rights and was, was, in fact, a second-class citizen, could reach the point where he became uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the Armed Forces and uh, a serious possibility for national political office. We should pocket that and say, my gosh, if he could do it, then there will be other minorities or, or people who are different from white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males, if you can use the sort of stereotype, uh, who can also do it. And I hope that's a source of inspiration to all of my fellow Americans, not just blacks, but women and, and poor white kids who are growing up in rural areas who wonder if uh, the future is there for them. And the answer is yes, anybody can do it. But it must also dismay you that in the past 30, 40 years, we still have not made enough progress in erasing the racial divisions in this country, that we are still seeing a rash of church burnings in the South. We are seeing discrimination uh, in, in every walk of life. This this must be very disheartening. It's, it's very disheartening, but you've you got to put it in balance. And the balance that I strike is that we have made great progress. I mean, uh, blacks are, are, are now middle class. Two-thirds of all blacks are now in the middle class compared to only one-third 30 years ago. We made great progress, great progress, but at the same time, that one-third that is left out falling further and further and further behind. There is still discrimination in this country, whether it's manifested in church bombings or more directly in redlining of uh, for, for getting mortgages if you're black or being denied service at uh, fast food restaurants that, still, that occurs in this country today. So the color of your skin still makes a difference, and that's why I am somewhat out of step with some of my political friends in continuing to fight for affirmative action. Uh, affirmative action that breaks down uh, the walls that separate people from economic and educational opportunity, affirmative action that realizes that we have made great progress, but we've still got a long way to go. Uh, our history is that rhetoric does not always match reality, beginning with the Declaration of Independence when all men were created equal, but they weren't. Through the Civil War, through Reconstruction, through Plessy versus Ferguson, through the Civil Rights Revolution of the 60s till today, where the rhetoric still does not match the reality of black life in America. And we must not give up the struggle. It is not just for black people. It is for all of America, for a better America, that the struggle has to continue. And that's why I believe that affirmative action is still important and is a part of it's a part of the struggle, one of the weapons in the struggle. But in the early days of the Clinton administration, were not those some of the same arguments made by those who wanted a gaze in the military policy? They said... You yourself were a victim of discrimination. How could you then discriminate against people because of their sexual orientation? I think the, the military was uh, is a unique place in American society. And uh, in order to make sure that we can have units that have a level of cohesion in them, so that when you say, let's go up a hill, we're going to die today. I mean, that's it, it's quite different from anything else in civilian life. And uh, my judgment at that time, a judgment which was reaffirmed by the Congress and continues to be the judgment of uh, the president, the current president, uh, candidates for president, and I think the considered judgment of the American people is that a distinction can be made in military life, and one of the sacrifices we ask gays and lesbians who wish to serve in the military is to keep their sexual orientation and preference uh, a private matter. Uh, and 
not intrude it into uh, the the, uh, the the open uh, unit environment. Uh, and it is a sacrifice we ask them to make. We think it's a sacrifice that's necessary for the good of the service, and it's along with other sacrifices that people make uh, to serve in the armed forces of the United States. In the final analysis, are you glad you wrote the book, or has it turned out to be a slide for life? <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad I wrote the book. I'm very pleased with the reaction it has gotten, especially the, the, the American journey, American dream part of it, the first part of it. Uh, I'm not sure I would do it again. There were some very, very tough days in writing that book. Uh, but I'm very pleased I did it, and I'm very, very pleased that I had the services of a marvelous collaborator in the person of Mr. Joseph Persico, um, who, as I say in the acknowledgments, uh, it was my story with our book. And uh, He's good. He, he is very, very good, and I'm very pleased I wrote it. Is there anything else that you want to... I'm running out of time. Is there anything else that you wanted to add, or any question you wanted me to ask you, any question you've been dying to answer for the past year, but nobody's asked you? Um, whether I'm still uh, playing with Volvos, which is one of my uh, habits, and the answer is yes, I still can play with old cars. Colin Powell died last month. He was 84. And you can find easy Amazon links to Colin Powell's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, be sure and listen to my 1994 interview with another great general of our time, one of the original Tuskegee Airmen, General Benjamin O. Davis. What we were able to demonstrate and achieve in World War II would be a determining factor in the future of blacks in the Army Air Corps and in the armed services of the United States once World War II was over. And my 1988 interview with another great military leader from modern times, Admiral Elmo Zumwalt. The decision on the use of Agent Orange is not unlike most decisions in war, which are the least worst alternatives. Uh, so it was with Agent Orange. We saved thousands, even though we are in the long run probably going to lose hundreds of those thousands. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, with America's schools the subject of so much debate these days about what is wrong and what is right with the public schools and what needs to be done, we're going to revisit my 1990 interview with another educator from a generation ago who was very controversial in her methods, my 1990 conversation with renowned educator Marva Collins. Right in the heart of the inner city, our children wear white shirts every day. They wear ties. Their shoes are polished. We do a checklist every morning because we believe if you can't put an outfit together, it's common sense. You certainly can't keep the world together. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.